Having lived abroad several times, I'm endlessly fascinated by stories of people packing their bags and heading off in search of a place to call home, even if it's for a short time. Looks like a lot of people went, went to Thailand, um, the usual routes, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, and I loved it. Anyone who's ever relocated to another country is familiar with the range of emotions that can come with it, from anticipation, excitement, and fun, to disappointment, stress, heartache, and sometimes even trauma. I literally took any job I could get at the time, and looking back, the school was terrible. The head teacher was a tyrant who uh, confiscated my passport, so I <laughs> he literally, literally had me in the palm of his hand. In the countless conversations I've had with people about this topic, one thing has become clear. Whilst all the things that people feel are usually the same, every story is different. This podcast explores each guest's journey abroad and sometimes back home again. It explores the question, what is home? Is it just a place of residence or something more than that? Welcome to the Residence Podcast. A couple of months ago, during the first lockdown, right around the time that the world started realising just how serious COVID-19 actually was, like a lot of people, I was just stuck inside with a lot of restless energy and downtime. Although I'd already recorded episode one of this podcast, the idea had gone a bit stale, and from memory, I'd just kind of given up on it. I felt the whole thing lacked a premise or a direction. I remember one afternoon, I took a walk through the gritty and multicultural suburb of Footscray in Melbourne, an area where English is usually the minority language and a mixture of Vietnamese, Mandarin and a wide variety of African languages dominate. This suburb is usually bustling and loud, with markets and restaurants alive with activity and families from many different ethnicities going about their daily lives. I mean, why wouldn't they? They're just like anyone else, aren't they? Aren't we all the same at the end of the day? The absence of the usual activity around this neighbourhood I'd grown to love made questions like this all the more loud. And instead of letting them ring out in my head, I did what I usually do whenever I'm moving closer towards a quiet, reflective state. I created a distraction. I called my brother for a bit of a chat while on my walk. And eventually, I even turned my camera on and gave him a tour of the local street art in Footscray. During this little outing, as my mood started to lift, we got chatting about what we'd been up to, and I filled him in about my creative block regarding the podcast. It was at this point that he told me he'd recently been in touch with a friend of his that he met and shared a lot of crazy adventures with in Southeast Asia, and that he would probably be more than happy to take part in something like this. Okay, so backpacker, ESL teacher history nut, travelled with my brother. When I got off the phone, I thought to myself, what's the angle going to be here? Is this a podcast about travelling? About teaching? Maybe languages? Again, I was overthinking it. My first interview with Adam kicked off in the evening, or in the morning, depending on whether you're me or him. In Melbourne, Australia, it was roughly 7pm. In Northern England, Chester Lee Street to be exact. It was around 10am. We were all set to go with our interview. 
As I mentioned, Adam was someone my brother and another close friend of mine from high school had met whilst travelling around Southeast Asia. He's a TEFL-qualified and Cambridge University teacher and an avid lover of history and languages. And these, among other things, were the sum of the topics of our discussion. What struck me most about Adam was his patience and enthusiasm with the whole process. How knowledgeable he was about his town in which he lives. And as you'll see, how cool his accent was. So, how you going, Adam? Thanks for <laughs> deciding to, or thanks for thanks for agreeing to do this. And uh, I'm just happy that we were able to get there in the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh it's good now we've sorted the uh, the technical gremlins out. And then especially yeah. as we've got about a bigger time difference as you can imagine. <laughs> so I think we've done well. Where are you just to just to kick it off? Where are you where are you in the world? I am in northern England. I'm in a small town called Chesterley Street. So if you're fond of cricket there's the International Cricket Stadium about two miles away from my house. Um where Australia generally beats England, but never mind. <laughs> oh yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I can, I can cut that part out pretty easily. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's about ten miles away from Newcastle, and the same from Sunderland, which are probably the two most well-known biggest cities. Um, oh, of course, yeah, probably more so through football, um, and it's only about less than an hour to Scotland and Hadrian's Wall. Um, so, I, well, from a personal point of view, I, here we probably have more in common with Scots people than um, than Londoners. So, yeah, but it's great. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. So, so, is that, so you're only like, you're only an hour, you said an hour and a half. So is that, that's in the, by car, right, to get to Scotland? Yeah, yeah. Um, about an hour... 45 minutes to the border on a good day and you can get to Edinburgh on the train in less than an hour and a half. So it's quite good. Oh, cool. So when you say, when you say you've got like more and you, you feel like you got more in common with the Scots, what makes you feel like you got more in common with them? Uh, I, think, I think the best way I can probably put it is like Game of Thrones where <laughs> oh, yeah. in, the, in the North, <laughs> a bit like the air. The, the Starks on on the other near the wall, say, which is obviously based on Hadrian's Wall, anyway. Um, and then if you're in London, it's a bit of a bubble, anyway. Um, mm-hmm. So I can't call Westeros in Game of Thrones. It's probably a bit like that. Um, oh, you're speaking. You're actually asking the wrong person. I've never seen Game of Thrones. If you can believe that. What? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I cop I cop a lot of flack for that. <laughs> it's not intentional. It's nothing intentional. I just, I don't know. I don't know. Especially don't know after lockdown. I think, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I know. Even after lockdown. I think um, it's just, um, I think it's sometimes like, I don't know, something, sometimes I'm very selective when it comes to things that are set in certain, I don't know, for some reason I really gravitate towards like contemporary stuff. It's not that I don't like history and don't like, you know, I mean, obviously it's fic- fictitious, but I don't like yeah. older stuff, but it's just when I'm watching something, for some reason, I'm always watching contemporary stuff. I don't know why. Yeah. In general, I'm pretty similar. I, I must be one of the only people who hates Lord of the Rings. I can't stand it. Um, no, you're not. I, you're speaking to you're speaking to someone else who does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great, great. Yeah. Oh, three hours long as well in the cinema. Couldn't believe it. And uh, yeah, 
Yeah, I don't really like like fantasy and that sort of thing. Yeah. But um I think that was a, a decent blend, especially in the first few seasons until uh until the dragons started going a bit crazy. Um it was a decent I hear, blend. I hear it's I hear it's like fantasy for people who don't like fantasy. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm. yeah. It, it's it's much, got much more in common with medieval England, I suppose, rather than yeah, rather than wizards and dragons and that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. Um, I did like. I didn't mind, even though it still wasn't like my favorite show in the world. I didn't. I could get into. I got into uh, Vikings a little bit. So, did you watch that? Have you watched that? Yes, and it's great. But I've only seen season one. Um, me too. I can't remember exactly. In here in the UK, it started off on a on a really odd channel that you would never expect it to be on. Um, oh, really? I think it was more on like a, a documentary channel called History. I think. Oh yeah. Because uh, and yeah, then yeah, when it got that. really popular, it it skipped over to to like a, a prime time cable mm. channel, and I kind of lost track a little bit then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think it was originally intended to be like just an educational tool and then it just gained popularity. I don't know if that's how it went, but I heard, I remember hearing something like that. It was meant to just be a, a you know, a, yeah, an edu- you know, an educational kind of series thing. And then it it was actually quite good. So people caught on. Yeah, I think, that, I think that was it. It's a shame as well, because a lot of it is like set around real places, obviously. Um, mm. And one is a place called Holy Island, where mm. they invaded quite a lot. That's about an hour's drive from my house as well. Um, oh, cool. You can actually get there via a causeway um, when it's low tide. And then when it's high tide, it's totally surround, like, cut off by the sea. Um, and just quickly, mm. the, the, the body of, I think it was St. Bede or St. Possibly was buried there because the Vikings kept on invading it. The mm. monks moved him to the closest city to me, which is Durham, which is about six mm. miles away. And then they built Durham Cathedral and Castle, which are a World Heritage Site now. Uh, so, oh, yeah, cool. that was all because of the Vikings. <laughs> There's a fair bit of history around there, where you're from. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, mm. Durham, the city itself, is called the Land of the Prince Bishops, and it it had, I think it was the only other place in England where whoever was the Prince Bishop of Durham at the time could set mm. their own rules and mint their own currency and that sort of thing outside of London. Oh, yep. And then um, those coins, is this those coins you sent me on Facebook? The yes, the one of them. The other day, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good uh, Good metal detecting territory around here. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, cool. But yes, so I love it. But um, a, a common, a common um, thing for Scots people to say is, is to call people from where I'm from uh, mm. lost jocks, and obviously jock is a slang for a Scottish person. So, <laughs> oh, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, I'm just like exposed to the. Yeah, I only had exposure to the um, jock as the word meaning like uh, someone into sports, just from US. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) This is another thing I found interesting about Adam. Someone who has such a fascination and passion for their hometown, city or country. Adam goes on to tell me where his love of history, language and travel came from. Well, I think obviously most things like that start when you're young. And Mm. my my granddad used to take me on walks. Um, Mm. 
and around here in the northeast, there was, there's all kinds of great history. I think I, I really got into the Romans when I was young, and that probably sparked mm. it all off. Uh, again, being close to Hadrian's Wall and that sort of thing. And he, he used mm-hmm. to tell me, like, I think half of them were made up, to be honest, looking back. <laughs> but mm-hmm. like, whimsical stories of uh, history and whatnot. Um, sure. And it probably, it probably spread from there. Um, yeah. You know, you're totally right. Love language, love travel, uh, love sport. Um, mm. And I, I like it's probably it still develops for me as a person i think as well um and you constantly learn and find out more and i and i mm-hmm. love how they're all they're all intertwined really um mm. especially language history um obviously language uh, english being the main main spoken language in the language of the business community um mm. and yeah so my interest part there and then after that it's probably self education and college education that helped me expand on it now i work in a, in a museum close close by to me fast forward to the more recent past and we get chatting about the familiar path that is booking your flight packing your bag and making your way for the unknown i th- think it was 2007 and i went backpacking um <laughs> obviously like a lot of people mm. went went to thailand um mm the usual routes, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, and I loved it. I made a few a few lifelong friends out there, and mm-hmm. they were teaching English abroad. Mm-hmm. Obviously a bit of research myself, and mm-hmm. that's probably the best way for a native English speaker to, to live somewhere like that. So mm-hmm. came home, saved money, quit my job, and retrained as a English teacher, did my TEFL qualification, uh, got certified from Cambridge University and yeah. literally just set off to Asia again without a job or anything. I started yeah, cool. off in Bangkok and that was, I left in November, 2011. And what made you want to, what made you want to travel abroad and teach? What made you want to do that? When did you first decide that like, this would be something you'd want to do a bit longer term. It started off, and I never really had a burning desire to teach, but it started off by me looking into ways of of how I could stay in Asia specifically for quite a long time. And unless you had a real specialist field, like maybe dive instructor or Mm, to generalize it, if you had a, had a profession that ties for example couldn't do then then that was the only really way forward so english teaching was the best example of that and then when i did my tefl qualification and the cambridge university um certification that sort of thing um i grew to love it and mm. Like in your training when you were stood in front of a class and I thought, I can see myself doing this long, t- long, long yeah, term. Sure. So, yeah, it stemmed from there, really. And how old were you at the time? Ooh, if you don't mind me asking. Good question. <laughs> uh, 27. 27, cool. Um, and is it, had you been, had you travelled much around Europe before that? Yeah, like a... Like a typical Brit, I suppose. I've been to Spain and France loads of times, Germany, yeah. um, America a few times, the Caribbean, mm. been in North oh, Africa, 
to Morocco and um, my favourite place actually, in Europe. Yeah, no, sorry, sorry. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, my favourite place in Europe and possibly the world, maybe is Italy, I'd say. Um, just, just for me personally, it's got a brilliant mix of uh, football and history, to be honest, <laughs> and then create beaches and all the, all the, all the usual stuff. <laughs> Yeah, Sorry, cool. you were going to say something? Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, because I, um, I only asked because I know that, like, the first time I had ever been overseas, the first time I'd ever left Australia at the age of 21 was to go to Sweden. Like, so I just skipped all. Like, I, I personally, yeah, I, 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 I personally have never been to anywhere in Asia, if you can believe that. But, like, I've been all around Europe and I think it was just, like, going for, like, going to extremes i'm just like i'm just gonna go as far as you know far as i can and explore the most you know you yeah know, I, I found yeah. i find that's something that's really interesting and, and ties into everything mm. to be honest how i mean for, for a brit bali is about as far away and as exotic is what you can get but i gather for for a lot of aussies it's your your cheap your cheap break that's close by and it's um, true and and yeah, well, obviously ours, Spain and France. If yeah, you live of in the south of England, you can get there in, in a couple of hours. You can drive or get the train. Whereas for North Americans and maybe Australians, they are like the opposite side of the world and and totally different. Oh, okay. <laughs> and here's the question I was going to ask: Where did you meet uh, Jimmy, my brother? Where did you, <laughs> you meet him and Mickey? I met Mickey and Jimmy in Laos. Um, when I'd left the school in Bangkok to do a visa run, we went to Laos and I had to wait for my next teaching position to start. And I'd been to Laos in 2008 um, mm. when I was backpacking. And I knew at Vang Vien, there was lots of bars on the river um, that would employ Westerners um, who could speak English. And it you didn't earn any money, but it would cost you nothing to live there. So you'd get your your lodging, your accommodation, um, food, drinks, um, all for free. So I thought, oh, great, explore Lau a little bit more, meet meet cool people. And obviously I did meet Mickey and Jimmy. And um, I did that for nearly two months in the end. And it just meant I didn't spend any money while I was waiting for the next teaching position to start. And did you guys travel together or anything like that? I don't even think I know. I don't think I even know like the story. Did you guys travel? Or did you just meet up um, in the one place? No, we, ju- we just stayed in um, in oh, Van oh, Vier. Oh, okay, yeah. And we were, all, we were in the same hotel, which was next door to the bar we worked in. The bar was called Sakura. I think it's still quite famous. Um, and then we... Me and my, my partner who I was traveling with, we had to leave to start teaching. And then we, when we went to Bali, your brother couldn't come out. Um, it wasn't long after Christmas, but Mickey came for about another three weeks and stayed with me then. And we tootled around Bali. Um, in fact, he was there for New Year's Eve, which is why I think your brother couldn't come Uh And yeah, I've stayed in touch ever since. We all know that no good story is without its obstacles. And whilst Adam was having a lot of fun, his adventure didn't come without its challenges. I I literally took any job I I could get at the time. And looking back, the Mm. school was terrible. The head teacher was a tyrant who uh, confiscated my passport. So I 
he literally <laughs> literally had me in the palm of his hand. Um, and then I really why? Uh, I don't know. It was linked to it. It was linked to visa issues, but and I think he had quite a lot of teachers realised that he didn't pay well. The school was poor. He wasn't very nice. He was a South African guy. Um, yeah. It was literally so you couldn't escape. Um, so I did that for a few months. And then in the end, when I was due to do a, a visa, a visa run anyway to extend my visa, he mm-hmm. had to give me my passport. And I went and had a new job lined up and never returned. <laughs> um, but I've heard horror stories where he literally kept people's passports and they ended up overstaying and having to pay humongous fines, that sort of thing. Um, oh, really? Was that So was that in was that in uh, Bangkok? In Bangkok, in, a, in yeah. a suburb on the outskirts called Pakret. Uh, Pakret. But then, and where, did, where was your next job lined up? Uh, from there, uh, it was more month by month after that so um was a school the best was probably Kosamui uh mm-hmm. in a place called Naton uh, mm-hmm. it's the opposite end of the island from from Shewang if anybody knows Kosamui well um and then from there i got in touch with english first through a Canadian girl who I'd worked with, and mm. she pointed me in the direction of a company called English First, and they're mm. a, a huge online English teaching company. They're mainly mm. based in China, um, so half the classes are Chinese students. Mm-hmm. And in China, they have massive centers where where students can go in, or they can learn from home from an iPad. I think. This was seven years ago now when I started mm. there. I think they were a bit of a trailblazer in that sense. And yeah. their hub for the teachers was based in Bali. So I got to live in Bali for the next year and a half and taught English from there. How long were you in Bangkok? For? I used to just go there, get a bit of shopping where everything was cheap and try to get mm. somewhere that I deemed a a cooler place as quickly as possible, like uh, mm. Chiang Mai or the islands, um, Koh Phangan, Koh Tao, something like that. Um, but once I got friendlier with people who knew the way around um, to show me the the sweet spots, similar to you in in Moscow, I think then I then I grew to love it. And then the the last significant time I was there, uh, that was when I was teaching in Pakret. And that was around about seven months. And so what did you used to do for fun over there? What were sort of some things that you used to do? Lords. Um, yeah. Things like I used to go to sporting events at the at the National Stadium. Um, so I think I, I saw Manchester City play there. Um, at least one weekend a month, I would fly down to the islands, Kosamui. Um, I think once I went over to... Um, to Vietnam, um, mm. obviously, if you, I just found out the low cost airways. I think it was Air Asia, and the, the flights used to be so cheap. So you used to just fly for a long weekend, places like that for I don't know, like fifty to a hundred US dollars, um, that mm. sort of thing, really. Yeah. So, what are some things that were different 
to how you thought they would be before you went. Like, because I don't know, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I have it. I often start like picturing how things will be and things yeah. I'm going to do and how people are, people are going to be. And then I'm always surprised in good ways and bad ways when I get somewhere. Uh, and especially if I start living there, because I think you see the, you see a new place through these, you know, rose colored glasses. You're like, everything's exciting. And then, you know, once reality sets in or you start living somewhere for a while, you start to see things as, you know, and they might start appearing better or worse than how you thought they would be. So can you think of anything like that? Um, yeah, to- totally. And you're totally right. Um, I think, again, a lot of that ties into what we were saying before with uh, language and um, the country's history and, and definitely stereotypes um, mm. in a certain place. So I don't know if I used Bali as an example, um, like tropical island paradise makes me think of gods and um, street parties, carnivals, beach living, mm. relaxed. And, and it is all them. And it, it was quite a lot what I expected. <clears throat> but generally... A main part of Bali is called Ubud, and I would say that is probably true Bali. Uh, but the main tourist spots, uh, Kuta, that sort of thing, they they aren't quite what I thought they would be like. They were more like a Spanish cheap resort with markets selling fake clothes and cheap beer and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. So I think there was that, um, and I absolutely loved it. Some some problems and and things that I never expected. Um, the police would definitely be one. Uh, this is in Bali. Yeah, at, at one specific junction or, or intersection, if you like, I was stopped by a policeman for stopping at a red light, <laughs> mm. and I thought, well. If I hadn't, I would probably be dead. So I thought, right. Oh, so they, they, meaning they didn't like it, kind of. They wanted you to keep going. Yeah, yeah. And uh, everyone else had stopped at a red light, as you do. Um, there was traffic coming from the other direction, and the the cop came out of his box and thank you, find me five dollars. Um, so, so I thought, right. The next time I go through this junction, I'm gonna gonna see see what's happening and luckily the lights changed um to um to green just when i got there so um i drove through them as you would and he he pulled me over again but this time for going through a green light so (laughs) he he pulled me over and fined me for both possible outcomes either stopping or going (laughs) <laughs> is that okay so do you think that do you think he sort of thought oh, i can get a bit of uh extra cash this i don't know like how does it work over there was it was he sort of was that a bit rigged was he doing that on purpose or yeah totally on thing? totally yeah. on purpose yeah um it's quite a common I'm, i remember when i started working at the school they give you like a little guidebook um yeah. of do's and don'ts and uh, nuances maybe should I say and one was never you, you will get stopped by the police if you're here long enough um it could be a, a genuine um complaint or more likely it would be a totally fictitious one uh and they said mm. never ever pay the the initial amount they ask for <laughs> I remember um oh, okay. So it's really funny. I, I was thinking you can find common ground. So 
I think the few times that the police stopped me for, for not doing anything, anything wrong at all, um, you generally start talking about football or family or barley or something like that. And then once, once you become friendly, often they just let you go. Uh, or, or sometimes it would be a, a totally small nominal fine. Hmm. It kind of reminds me of um, once when I was in, uh, was it Poland or right? You know, I was in, it was in uh, Poland actually. And I, I, I was actually back when I smoked, I had a, I was having a cigarette on the platform and the cops came up and fined me. And they said, you know, next time, wait till you get in the train, get on the train to have a cigarette. <laughs> I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Uh, yeah. Where, where's the logic there? <laughs> yeah. It's like next time, wait till you get on the train. And another time, like this is another cigarette story. It was actually in the Moscow airport, and my brother, you know, I said to James, I said, "Oh, like my brother actually, who we'll get to in a sec because you know him." And and um, I was like, "Oh, like feel like a cigarette." And it's like, okay, well, let's. Um, I said, "Oh, I think you know you can usually get away with going in the toilets here." And then we, um, and he's like, "What if the cops sort of you know see because he was new to Russia?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, look, I think it'll be fine." So we just went into a cubicle and had a cigarette, and then. Um, could see that someone in the next cubicle was smoking and I thought, oh, I wonder who that is. And then a cop came out. So a cop was having a cigarette in the cubicle as well. Oh, right. In the, in the cubicle next to us. So, and, and here we are worried about the cops. That was quite funny. James just saw his <laughs> cop come out of a cubicle and, and exhale exhale a big smoke. So he thought that was quite funny. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, I've just thought of one. In Bali, I kind of lived in a street with – other English teachers, um, Canadians, Aussies, Americans, yeah, uh, that sort of thing. And there's a a local group called the Banjar, and the the weird mix of kind oh. of local, like council or government officials, but they also have like powers a bit like the police, and they kind of keep the community in order and come around to see what's happening and collect odd taxes. Um, and my passport was at the embassy getting extended and they came and knocked on the door one day and I thought, oh no, this could like, this could be a world of pain. I haven't got my passport. They didn't speak very good English because we were in a real, like a non-tourist area. Um, and my friend had his and he, I can't remember quite what happened. His stamp was, it was overdue. Um while something was getting sorted out, uh, the bureaucracy and yeah. the paperwork's a bit ridiculous. And I remember thinking he could see that and think, I haven't got my passport. And he could, he could literally just march you to the airport and make you go. Um, so he opened the door, looked at the passport, and he said, uh, oh, Bali, Bali, you've been in Bali too long. And so yeah. my heart sank and I thought, oh, no. But um it was his English, and he he meant to say you've been in Bali a long time. <laughs> oh, oh, and then uh, then started talking about Manchester United. So I was, I was oh no, <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Yeah. Obviously, you should obviously <clears throat> learn like learn local customs and that sort of thing. Like for example, in Thailand, it's it's like so rude to show the soles of your feet. Um, if if you sat on a chair with your feet up, for example, you should point your toes down. Um, <clears throat> oh, is that right? Yeah, and it, it ties in with, with taking your, your flip-flops off if you're entering a building or your shoes, that sort of thing. Uh, but, yeah, so, like, learning little local customs that like you would never think of like that, like you obviously 
you really should. Um, but then, the, then you get that mixed in with all the with like a slight bit of corruption or bureaucracy or whatever, and it totally throws you. Is there anything else like that you can think of? Any any sort of interesting things that that Thailand or Bali has that's completely like sort of foreign to us, like to to Brits or to Australians or you know or you know Westerners, so so to speak. Like, is there anything else you can think of that? Um, that goes on there, but, my, um, my Canadian friend got a tattoo of, of Buddha um, it was really nicely done and he's, he, he was so excited because he's like oh the, the ties the, they're so friendly anyway they're, they're going to love me because of this um, oh okay I see where and, this is going yeah and, and the first few days we were walking around and he was getting some really odd looks Uh and then it was eventually one Thai guy came up to him and was like, your tattoo? And he, he was like, yeah, it's great, isn't it, Buddha? And he said, no, it's so bad. Um, obviously, Buddha's the most revered symbol and he, he had it on his on his foot. <laughs> so it's a, oh, a on, which, which is like the, the dirtiest part of your body. You've got to wash your feet before you go in someone's house sort of thing. So he, he basically oh, no. put their god on <laughs> the worst part of his body. <laughs> And any other challenges you had, like that you can think of living, living in those countries like Thailand and Bali specifically, or just traveling in general? What are some of the bigger challenges you came up against, or um, or some challenges you've had? Ch- or- for example, I would say definitely um, learning the local language, or at least enough to mm. get by, is a is a massive thing. Um, for example, in in Thailand. Uh, if you can't speak Thai, a, a big uh, ruse, if you like, is to get in a taxi and the driver won't put the taxi meter on. He'll just give you a set fare that is cheap by Western standards, but extortionate for Thai prices. Oh, and most okay. people pay it because you're, you're new or um, new to the country, that sort of thing. And sure. they'll also often tell you that the temple or wherever you want to go is closed on that particular day and then you can often find yourself in their friend's shop instead <laughs> they'll have took you uh, there uh-huh, um, uh-huh. so that, I think yeah definitely learning local languages or, or a little bit at least to say hello and thank you and that sort of thing and it's, and it's obviously nice and a friendly friendly custom as well it's appreciated um, of course. for example but when I first before I learned my way around Pakret, um, when I was teaching, I learned how to get the, the public bus routes eventually. Um, but initially, I, I used to get a taxi to school. And even though the same taxi driver would pick me up, and he knew I could converse in Thai, but, but wasn't great in it, every morning and every night on the way home, we still had the same <laughs> debate about getting him to turn the the meter on and it wasn't uh, 500 baht as he was trying to charge me even though he knew me <laughs> so that was, uh, oh really yeah <laughs> maybe he won't notice this time <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah exactly meter's broken <laughs> something i can think of like in russia it's um not 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 so much in poland but in russia definitely like you you just hail down. You just you just hail down um, cars, civil like c- civilians driving around, and they give you a lift somewhere, and you just yeah. pay them. Like so, so a guy will be on his way to work. It's it's like extremely common. Like it's what you do. Actually, it's like yeah. At least when I was there, which was only 
what it was under 10 years ago when I was there. So I don't doubt it's changed. I doubt it's changed too much. It's like you just, yeah, you come out of the uni, uni dormitory or wherever, you know, you finish work or, and you just, you hail a car, any car, and then you just, and they'll just stop and they might be on their way to work or they might be on their way to a friend's house and then you just give them a little fee. That's how it goes in, in Russia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, you don't get, you don't, um, you don't catch cabs. Like you just don't. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. So that's that. That was something interesting when I was there. It's quite handy, I suppose. But then, I think with our, I don't know, Western brain, if you want to call it, or what we're used to, I, I already think in my mind, oh God, like how would they regulate that if something happened to you? <laughs> oh no, no, exactly, exactly. No, it's, it totally. Like when I, it took me a really long time to get used to, it and they're like. Like, I know it was odd, like girls, would, and I still didn't agree with this, but girls would do it. They'd just be like, oh, I'll just, I'll just get a car and then I'll just head home. And it's like, <laughs> and it'd be like one single male in there. Yeah. But she didn't know. And yeah. And, but I had never, I've never, I never heard of anything happening from anyone you know so i don't know but yeah it's odd i don't know yeah see that's funny it ties into stereotypes because i'd say in general especially mm. in the western media russians have a uh stereotype of being quite hard and cold and that sort of thing whereas any yeah. Russian person i've met they've been amazingly friendly and would mm. invite into the house and give you the food and drink and want yeah. to talk to you sort of thing. So, yeah, it's strange. They're both they're both true at the same time. Both those both those things are true. Like at the same time, but not. But they're not. They're not. They're not like a lot of Russians are like. I think. I think. Um, like stereotypes and and the negative things or the you know I think those spread much more quickly than and get misunderstood more than anything else. Like when it comes yeah. to like certain cultures and things like that, like, so, but it's, so it's true that they, they are like a lot of Russians like to walk around the streets and stuff like that. They just, it's just their, their social etiquette's just different. Like, and I think it maybe even ties in a little bit. I've heard, I mean, people have said like, you know, maybe it ties in a little bit with their um, history of um, anyone looking jovial or outgoing and not just, you know, um, you know, smiling too much or, you know, they must know something or they're doing something or they're up to something. Whereas, you know, you had to, you know, yeah. have this poker face back in the, you know, communist times, you know, otherwise the secret, uh, not the secret police, what do you call them? Um, you know, the in, in, behind the iron curtain. The, yeah. It's uh, not the Stasi, isn't it? Is it the Stasi? I think, yeah, yeah. I think I can't remember. I should know this, but I can't remember. But yeah, it's like, you know, that kind of 1984 kind of you're always being watched so it's you've got to be alert and like yeah friendliness and openness and warm warmth is kind of a sign of weakness and that you're not, not KGB. On, on. that's the one yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's it yeah so it come it ties into that and then it's but it's you know when they're in an environment that where they don't you know when they're not on autopilot, they are quite friendly. It's just that they don't uh, in the US and here and England. It's politeness and friendliness is a big, big thing. I think. Um, yeah. Again, that that ties into language. I, I before I started teaching, I, I worked on a 
it was a little boat in Thailand and it, it took people around the islands for a day trip. Um, and there was like drinks and refreshments on board. And we'd have quite a lot of Middle Eastern and Israeli customers. And it was my first few days of, of working on the boat. And I was starting to get really annoyed because a lot of them would say, uh, you, and point at me, you, get me drink now. Um, <laughs> or you, get me food now. And I was thinking, Jesus, <laughs> this is uh, a bit intense. And then um, I think near the end of the day, I was sat talking um, talking to some of the guys who were, who were on the on the boat, um, some of the Israeli guys, actually, and they were amazingly nice and the and they said oh like that's how we talk to each other like you it's just not a thing to in our in our conversation or in our customs to say oh could i have a drink please um it's like that's how i talk to my mom my grandma like anything (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely yeah absolutely and they don't um i know that in a lot of languages like you know, how are you? Like in, 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 you know, in Britain and in Australia, like, how are you? You don't, that doesn't require an answer. It like, <laughs> whereas, you, you know, if you say something to someone in, in Russian or in Polish or whatever, like in, in a lot of languages, if you say, hi, how are you? That That's a genuine question that needs like yeah. answering. How am I? Well, will let me get into that. Whereas it's just part of hello in, in, in our cult, you know, and yours and mine culture, you know, it's like, yeah Hi, hey, hey how, how you going it's like yeah man good it's like you don't need to go into it it's like yeah that's funny you should mention that one of the the first thai phrases i learned is um was sabadi kap sabai and that means oh yeah um, how are you yeah and i used to often get quite a lot of a blank faces because and i thought am, am i saying it wrong or or what? Um, but it, it means hello, how are you? But they just they don't really use it. So the, it, yeah. it was a, a correct translation or whatever. But it was like an odd phrase for them to hear in Thai. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> how how would you how would you compare like Aussies to Brits? Like, what are a few things that um, are different and similar? Auss- and- Aussies and Brits are very 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 similar deep down. Um, sport and heritage and all that sort of thing, likes and dislikes, values. I think there's some funny, funny differences, and I'd say a lot of them come from 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 what I see. Oz, obviously, a, at one point, and Australians were were more like a a warped version of Brits. But I think as time's gone on, they're now kind of like Aussies seem to be like a mix of parts of Brit and then parts of American and then parts of Australian to form like one big mix. I really enjoyed being in a bar or just out socially and um, the amount of times someone found out that I was from Newcastle um, and a, a dead common thing was like, oh, my great, great uncle lived in Newcastle a hundred years ago. Yeah. Sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I thought that was really cool. There's one of the last questions, like, um, can you, like, yeah, can you comment a bit on the, just the spread of English throughout the world and why you think it's, why you think it's, um, why you think it's just such a huge, or like why you know it's a huge language, like why is it, why is it something that's spoken, you know, A, in so many places and B, by so many people? Yeah, definitely, well. It's probably similar to, to, uh, to cricket in a way, um, and it's it's spread yeah. with the British Empire, obviously. Um, yeah. 
so India, and then obviously South Africa, the whole continent of, of North America, Australia, New mm. Zealand, um, mm. even Hong Kong. Um, so it spread with that. And most of it, for me, ties in with wealth. And if you wanted a slice of the pie, so to speak, and to be able to communicate with British traders and and earn well, possibly vast sums of wealth compared to what you were used to, uh, say, figuratively speaking, 200 years ago, then then you had to speak British, um, like British English, and that I think it stemmed from there, really. And then, so it became the language of the business world, and then s- smaller things as well over time, like it's the language of air uh, traffic control. Um, and yeah, so it's bad from there. It's, it's really, really interesting. Popular I say I compared it to cricket because well. obviously, if you think of the countries that play cricket, it's all it's all the same, and they were all all part of the part of the old empire. So, um, yeah, I I always thought when I particularly remember my Chinese students, they used to love learning English. Um, I think for 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 Westerners, it can be a bit of a a bit of a mission, a bit of something you have to do. And English people are so lazy at bothering to learn another language because generally you don't have to. Um, but especially with China continuing to be an emerging nation, uh, if you want to earn money in business, then you, you have to speak English. And I, I'll also remember a lot of my Chinese students approaching it as a game almost. And... Um, like some of my Chinese students loved technology and that sort of thing. And it all tied in together. So it was a, a bit like going from a, a, a beginner to um, a lower intermediate to an intermediate speaker. And it was like progressing through levels on a computer game um, as your English progressed sort of thing. And that's how they treat it. And I thought that was quite a good idea. And uh, as as like a last question, like why why do you think it's important, or like what maybe like why was it so important for you, and why do you think it's important for other people to like get out there and explore the world and think about things like think think about things like we've been talking about, like why should they you know at least give a bit of their attention to things like that? Oh, I would encourage anyone to do it. Um, it it can be poked fun at a little bit um especially in western films and things being like oh i'm I'm off backpacking for a year to find myself sort of thing (laughs) (laughs) and i don't think it needs to be put as formally as that but i I suppose if you can sum up the world at the minute maybe with with all the protests and black lives matter and that sort of thing i think for Mm -hmm. me you, you generally realize the main thing i could take for it is that everybody is is basically the same they have the same values deep down um people want to be friendly normally you, you want to look after your family and your friends you would like a bit of money to to enjoy life with um and the main thing i would take from it is it doesn't matter if someone is black or white or asian or gay or straight um anything like that it doesn't matter where you're from what country you're from it just matters that if you're a nice, good, fun person, or if you aren't, and all of all of these other labels, that it really doesn't matter if you're from Bangkok or Newcastle or Adelaide or New York. Um, the main thing I learned definitely was 
if you're a good person, um, then that's brilliant. And if you're not a nice person, if you're an ass, <laughs> if you like, then I'll, then yeah, I probably wouldn't like you. And it doesn't doesn't matter at all where you're from or what your religion is or your ethnicity or your sexuality or anything like that. That's definitely the the, the main thing I, I picked up on from years of living abroad. Moving abroad is a monumental step for anyone. If home truly is in the same place as your heart, and your heart is committed to adventure and new experiences, you're bound to form a special bond with the place where you end up. It's also inevitable that the road to forming this bond will be filled with emotions brought on by challenges you face, the people you meet, and the things you achieve. All this and more will give you stories to tell. It didn't take me long to come to the realisation that this should be the focus of the project. A series of conversations about people moving to new places around the world and everything that it brings each individual. I hope you'll be with me on this adventure and on the next episode of the Residence Podcast.